Good afternoon, brothers and sisters. It is a great blessing that we may be here again to join together in the worship of our triune God. We extend a warm welcome to all present here and to all those who have joined us via the live stream this afternoon as well. And we are thankful that this afternoon we may also witness the sacrament of baptism as it is administered to Isabel Ripka. May the preaching of the gospel message direct our hearts and minds in faith and trust to our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. Consistory has the following announcement. Sister Melissa Van June has informed Consistory that she will be moving to Holland. And since we do not have a sister church relationship with any of the churches there, our sister has requested to withdraw her membership from the Free Reform Church of Southern River in order to join the GKN Church in Hardenberg, the Netherlands. And Consistory acquiesces with her withdrawal. And this afternoon, we welcome Reverend Paul, Minister of our sister church in Mundajong, to the pulpit. And before we commence the worship service, let us sing together hymn 56, verse 1. rise to worship the Lord. We confess that our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from him who is, and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Amen. Let's respond to the Lord's greeting in the words of Psalm 99, stanzas 1, 2, 5, and 6.
the peoples quake, earth's foundations shake, for in Zion he shows his majesty. It is in church that we understand what the Lord has done in redemption, in creation, in redemption, in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's confess what the church over the ages has confessed and believed in the words of the Apostles' Creed as it's put to music in hymn one. see God's great works is in the creation of children and in promising them the covenant of redemption which we see in baptism and so in light of those promises Dawa and Julia have requested baptism for their daughter Isabel Hannah Rupke so we will read the form for the baptism of infants together page 597 and after the baptism has been administered, I invite you all to rise and to sing hymn 58 together. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the doctrine of holy baptism is summarized as follows. First, we and our children are conceived and born in sin and are therefore by nature children of wrath so that we cannot enter the kingdom of God unless we are born again. This is what the immersion in or sprinkling with water teaches us. It signifies the impurity of our souls so that we may detest ourselves, humble ourselves before God and seek our cleansing and salvation outside of ourselves. Second, baptism signifies and seals to us the washing away of our sins through Jesus Christ. 
We are therefore baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When we are baptized into the name of the Father, God the Father testifies and seals to us that he establishes an eternal covenant of grace with us. He adopts us for his children and heirs and promises to provide us with all good and avert all evil or turn it to our benefit. When we are baptized into the name of the Son, God the Son promises us that he washes us in his blood from all our sins and unites us with him in his death and resurrection. Thus we are freed from our sins and accounted righteous before God. When we are baptized into the name of the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit assures us by this sacrament that he will dwell in us and make us living members of Christ, imparting to us what we have in Christ, namely the cleansing from our sins and the daily renewal of our lives till we shall finally be presented without blemish among the assembly of God's elect in life eternal. Third, since every covenant contains two parts, a promise and an obligation, we are, through baptism, called and obliged by the Lord to a new obedience. We are to cleave to this one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to trust Him and to love Him with our whole heart, soul, and mind, and with all our strength. We must not love the world, but put off our old nature and lead a God-fearing life. And if we sometimes, through weakness, fall into sins, we must not despair of God's mercy nor continue in sin, for baptism is a seal and trustworthy testimony that we have an eternal covenant with God. Although our children do not understand all this, we may not therefore exclude them from baptism. Just as they share without their knowledge in the condemnation of Adam, so are they, without their knowledge, received into grace in Christ. For the Lord spoke to Abraham, the father of all believers, and thus also speaks to us and our children, saying, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout the generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Peter also testifies to this when he says, For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Therefore, in the old dispensation, God commanded that infants be circumcised. This circumcision was a seal of the covenant and of the righteousness of faith. Christ also took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. In the new dispensation, baptism has replaced circumcision. Therefore, infants must be baptized as heirs of the kingdom of God and of his covenant. And as they grow up, their parents have the duty to instruct them in these things. In order that we may now administer this holy sacrament of God to his glory, for our comfort, and to the upbuilding of the congregation, let us call upon his holy name. Almighty God, in your righteous judgment you punish the unbelieving and unrepentant world with a flood. But in your great mercy saved and protected the believer Noah and his family. You drowned the obstinate Pharaoh and all his hosts in the Red Sea, but let your people Israel through the midst of the sea on dry ground, by which baptism was signified. We therefore pray that you, in your infinite mercy, will graciously look upon this your child and incorporate her by your Holy Spirit into your Son, Jesus Christ, so that she may be buried with him by baptism into death and raised with him to walk in newness of life. We pray that she, following him day by day, may joyfully bear her cross and cleave to him in true faith, firm hope and ardent love. Grant that she, comforted in you, may leave this life, which is no more than a constant death, and at the last day may appear without terror before the judgment seat of Christ her Son. 
All this we ask through him, our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who with you and the Holy Spirit, one only God, lives and reigns forever. Amen. Dawa and Julia, would you please rise? Beloved in Christ the Lord, you have heard that baptism is an ordinance of the Lord our God to seal to us and our children his covenant. We must therefore use this sacrament for that purpose and not out of custom or superstition. That it may be clear then that you desire baptism for the right purpose, you are to answer sincerely the following questions. First, do you confess that our children, though conceived and born in sin, and therefore subject to all sorts of misery, even to condemnation, are sanctified in Christ and thus as members of his church ought to be baptized. Second, do you confess that the doctrine of the Old and New Testament summarized in the confessions and taught here in this Christian church is the true and complete doctrine of salvation? Third, do you promise as father and mother to instruct your child in this doctrine as soon as she is able to understand and to have her instructed therein to the utmost of your power? What is your answer, Brother Hupke? Sister Hupke. Isabel, Hannah, Rupke, I baptize you into the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.
Let's give thanks together. Almighty, merciful God and Father, we thank and praise you that you have forgiven us and our children all our sins through the blood of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ. You received us through your Holy Spirit as members of your only begotten Son, and so adopted us to be your children. You sealed and confirmed this to us by holy baptism. We pray through your beloved Son that you will always govern this child by your Holy Spirit, that she may be nurtured in the Christian faith and in godliness, and may grow and increase in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grant that she thus may acknowledge her fatherly goodness and mercy which you have shown to her and to us all. May she live in all righteousness under our only teacher, King and High Priest Jesus Christ, and valiantly fight against and overcome sin, the devil and his whole dominion. May Isabel, Hannah, Rutke forever praise and magnify you and your son Jesus Christ, together with the Holy Spirit, the one only true God. And as we prepare ourselves to learn about the second commandment, help us also to remember that baptism is to us a representation of your grace and that we are only ever to worship you through the means that you provide, not to make our own, not to desire any other. We pray therefore that also this afternoon you would remind us of that, that you would point us to your glory and to your goodness and to the good that you give to us all in your promises, which are so beautifully represented in baptism. We pray that you would bless our hour of worship together and hear us in Jesus' name. Amen. This afternoon, we will be focusing on what Scripture teaches regarding the second commandment. And as background for that, we will read 1 Kings 12, verse 25 to 13, verse 10. First Kings, First Kings, twelve, verse twenty-five to thirteen, verse ten. So, this takes place. What is described here takes place immediately after the splitting of the kingdom. After Solomon died, his son Rehoboam was supposed to reign in his stead, and Rehoboam received and followed bad advice. The kingdom was split in half, and so um, Judah went to Rehoboam and the rest went to Jeroboam. So verse 25 picks up after that, and it says, Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord, at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, 
You've gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month, like the feast that was in Judah. And he offered sacrifices on the altar. So we did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day in the 8th month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. And behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. And the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who made offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. And when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him. And his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up, so that he could not draw it back to himself. The altar also was torn down, and the ashes poured out from the altar, according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And the king said to the man of God, Entreat now the favor of the Lord your God, and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. And the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him, and became as it was before. And the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. And the man of God said to the king, If you give me half your house, I will not go in with you. And I will not eat bread or drink water in this place, for so it was commanded to me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall neither eat bread nor drink water, nor return by the way that you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way that he came to Bethel. So far, let's now sing from Psalm 85, stanza 3 and 4.
So this afternoon we will learn about what scripture teaches regarding the second commandment. You shall make for yourself no carved image as it's summarized for us and as the church confesses it in Lord's Day 35, page 552. Here we read as follows. What does God require in the second commandment? We are not to make an image of God in any way, nor to worship him in any other manner than he has commanded in his word. May we then not make any image at all? God cannot and may not be visibly portrayed in any way. Creatures may be portrayed, but God forbids us to make or have any images of them in order to worship them or to serve God through them. But may images not be tolerated in the churches as books for the laity, no, for we should not be wiser than God. He wants his people to be taught not by means of dumb images, but by the living preaching of his word. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, boys and girls, have you ever drawn a picture in church? Maybe your parents told you that you were allowed to draw, but only if it had something to do with the sermon. So maybe you drew a stick minister in a stick pulpit, or maybe you drew a picture of a story that you knew, like Jonah and the big fish, or something like that. And it could even be that you have a whole notebook full of these drawings that you've made over the year. And if you look at them from beginning to end, usually you see that the drawings get better over time, right? And eventually you outgrow the need for that sort of thing altogether, and you're able to focus on the word, on the preaching of the word without drawing anything. But you know what? Some people never outgrow that need for images. Many people in the northern kingdom of Israel didn't either during the time of Jeroboam. Jeroboam had a pair of golden calves made to help them worship God. And those calves were like, kind of like a picture of what they thought God should look like. And that's sin against the second commandment. God hates it when people try to make an image of him and makes him jealous. The second commandment contains terrible consequences for those who try to worship him in this way. He promises to curse them to the third and fourth generations. And he even implies that this kind of image worship, like what Jeroboam did, is a form of hatred of him. Now, Lord's Day 35 takes this idea and it extrapolates it to mean that we are not to worship God in any other manner than he has commanded us in his word. 
But why? Why does our Lord command this? And this afternoon we'll try to answer that question from two different angles. Why does God call us not to worship him in any other manner than he has commanded in his word? He does so for his glory and he does so for our good. So any image by nature, no matter what it is, no matter how beautiful it is, will be disrespectful to God. No matter how elaborate it is. And that's because God is incomparable. God is the creator. God has made all things and is above them all. God is separate from them all. God is incomparable to them all. As he says in Isaiah 40, To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? And in Hosea 8 he says, With their silver and gold they made idols for their own destruction. It is from Israel. A craftsman made it. It is not God. So any attempt at trying to capture God's glory is going to be a lie. No matter what it is, God does not want to be reduced to the work of human hands in any way, shape, or form. And that is because God cannot be reduced. As the Lord Jesus later said, God is spirit and those who want to worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And even if you do that, you can still never completely capture in your mind what God is like. In fact, we can know nothing about God unless he reveals himself to us first. He is completely free. That is why making an image of God is so disrespectful because it rejects God's self-revelation. It attempts to enter into a relationship with God on your own terms and then to control that relationship. And in that sense, making an image of the true God is no different from heathen worship. In heathen thinking, the relationship between God and the worshiper is a little bit like the relationship between a solar panel and the sun. So as you know, when, when you have a solar panel, you can capture some of the energy of the sun and you can put it to work for you. You can use it for your own ends. And just like a solar panel lets you harness that, that energy of the sun, so idolatry lets you harness the power of the God. That is how heathens think. You use the, the image to control the power of the God, to contain it, to channel it into a form that you can use and manipulate. And so heathen worship is based on control. That is one of the many ways in which the relationship between a heathen and his God is profoundly dysfunctional. It's based on control. And no healthy relationship can ever be based on control. And so that dynamic of control does not change just because you happen to worship the true God instead of a false one. The second commandment is essentially saying, don't bring that dysfunction into your relationship with God. Do not try to manipulate God. Any relationship based on controlling and manipulation is dysfunctional. It is doomed to failure. Especially when it attempts to take away the glory that God deserves. When it tries to reduce him and to shape him into someone that we can use for our own ends. And now this aspect of misuse and manipulation really comes to the foreground in our reading today. Jeroboam had become king over the northern kingdom of Israel. When Jeroboam was an intelligent man... And he realized that religion can serve as a powerful political tool to unite a country. He didn't want the loyalty of his subjects to revert back to King Rehoboam, so he made two calves of gold. And the word indicates that these were bull calves. 
Now, for the boys and girls especially, I want you to realize that Jeroboam did not think in his head that God actually looked like a bull. He's not, trying to, he's not trying to make an image of the actual physical shape that he thinks God is. The point was, what does it represent? And a bull calf represents strength. It represents power. It is, to him, it was an embodiment of God's power. And Jeroboam wanted that power. He wanted to use it for the purposes of political control. Now, in and of itself, that was, of course, a, a blatant sin against the second commandment. But what makes it interesting is that he wanted to connect it to existing tradition. He wanted the weight of tradition to lend respectability to his worship. And the location had a lot to do with that. If you, if you look at what the passage says, Jeroboam strategically located these calves on the northern and southern ends of his kingdom. Dan was near the northern border. Bethel was near the southern border of the kingdom. Dan was also where a grandson of Moses had served as a priest to the people of Dan in Judges 18. And Bethel, of course, was where, God had, where Jacob had encountered God. And later on, the Ark of the Covenant was kept there. So these are places with a deep religious tradition that is based in God's prior self-revelation. And Jeroboam wants to take that tradition, he wants to take the weight of God's self-revelation and use it for his own ends. And don't think for a moment that that sort of thing only happened back then. In fact, the misuse of religion for political ends, um, one place, well, you can see it all over the, the world today, but one particularly striking example came from about three years ago from uh, the presidency of President Donald Trump. On the 1st of June 2020, during the George Floyd riots, protesters were cleared so that Trump and administration officials could walk to the nearby St. John's Episcopal Church. And there, as you may remember, Trump was posed, he was photographed holding a Bible. He posed with his Bible in his hands beside this church and he held it up and he was photographed holding this Bible. And the purpose of that was to highlight his message of law and order. Now this is no different at all from what Jeroboam had done. Trump as well was using the weight of God's word and the long history of the church and of religious tradition to advance his own cause. And law and order is a good cause. But this was still a clear and reprehensible misuse of religion for political ends. It would have been different if he would have gone there to simply quietly pray during the riots. But he went there specifically for the purpose of being to be photographed beside this church holding this Bible. He did that so that he could give the weight of religious tradition to his own message of law and order. And that is 100% sin against the second commandment, no less than if he had made a golden calf image of God and worshipped it in that very same place. Now, why do people want to worship God using an image in this way? What is an image? An image, in the end, is man's attempt at securing a blessing from God. Think back to this aspect of manipulation. It's man's attempt at securing a blessing from God. That's what it means to worship on your own terms. It is to get a blessing from God on your own terms. And the reason why this cannot work is because the only ground that there is for God's blessing is the covenant. That's the only way that you will ever get a blessing, through the covenant. 
And we saw the sign and seal of that covenant administered this afternoon in the baptism of Isabel Hannah Wipke. It is God's covenant through which we get a blessing. Why? Because the covenant is guaranteed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Consider the wording also of the Lord's Supper form on this point. Think of these words of the form under the heading, Remembrance of Christ. It says, He even let his blessed body be nailed to the cross that he might cancel the bond which stood against us because of our sins. By all this he has taken our curse upon himself that he might fill us with his blessing. See, God does give us a blessing, but he will always do it on his own terms. And these are the only terms that he will ever accept. Here they are, the blood of Christ poured out for the forgiveness of all our sins. But he does that freely. Nobody compels him to do so. Nobody manipulates him into doing so. Nobody ever could. But there's no need to anyway. There's no need to have images. There's no need to try to control God because God is gracious. God is generous. He is the overflowing fountain of all good, says the Belgian Confession. Article 1. God is the overflowing fountain of all good. God created us as people to share that good with us. You don't need to manipulate him into giving it. He gives it freely. And it's hard for us to grasp that. You know why? Because we're afraid. We're afraid of losing what we have. We're afraid of losing God's blessing. Not the spiritual side of it in the back of our minds. We, we always believe that. But the material manifestations of that blessing. And so all of us to some degree are motivated by control. We might not make an image to, to do that, but we worry a lot, don't we? It would be interesting to have a show of hands. We're not going to do it today, but it would be interesting to have a show of hands and to ask who was worried about something this past week, and is that the first time that you worried about it? Probably most hands would go up. We worry. We worry about our health. We worry about the state of our country. We worry about our parenting. We worry about what we wear. We worry about our diet. We worry about all sorts of things. Now, why do we do that? It's like we think that we can hold on to God's blessing by constantly worrying about it. How is that any different from someone holding on to God's blessing by making an image? Is our worry sometimes not also a transgression of the second commandment or at least maybe get very close? Life in the covenant is not meant to be secured. Life in the covenant is meant to be received. You cannot secure God's covenant blessings for yourself. You cannot hold on to them. You cannot retain them. All you can do is receive them as a gift. And that's an act of God's free grace. God is not obligated to give us anything. God is not even obligated to give you your next heartbeat. God is free, remember. He didn't even tie himself to his own temple in the Old Testament. Think about... What, you, what, what is recorded for us in Jeremiah chapter 7? The people in the days of Jeremiah thought that they could also lean on their religious traditions and their religious heritage to protect them when they were disobedient. And here's what God says to them. 
I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. So God didn't even tie himself to the institutions that he had previously established for worship. But he did tie himself to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the guarantor of the covenant. In him, all of God's blessings are ours. And because of him, we don't need to make an image of God. We don't need to wrangle a blessing from him like Esau tried to wrangle a blessing from his father Isaac. Because in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Ephesians 1. And as Paul said in Romans 8, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him give us all things? And that's where you find the visible manifestation of God's glory. You find it in Christ. That is why he does not want us to worship him in any other manner than he has commanded in his word. And he takes that very seriously. In the second commandment, God promises drastic punishments for those who reject this commandment to the third and fourth generations of those who hate him. That generational longevity is reflected in the words of the prophet who comes to Jeroboam. The prophet warns that a son will be born to the house of David who will take vengeance on those who serve at Jeroboam's altar. And in that, he prefigures the other son of David, Jesus Christ himself, who will one day utterly reject all those who share in false worship. We should think about that, especially now in this time of Advent. Advent means a time of waiting, a a preparation for the coming of Christ. And Advent was a waiting of God's people before the first coming of Christ. And today in Advent, we also remember that Christ will come again as judge of the living and the dead and will not give us glory to another. Why does God call us not to worship him in any other manner than he's commanded in his word? We've seen that he does so for his glory and he also does so for our good. That's our second point. One of the really beautiful themes running through scripture is God's longing for his people. God's longing for the work of his hands, as it says in Job 14, verse 15. God's longing for what he has redeemed in Christ. There's no false God who could ever be as close to his worshipers as God is to his people. He was the one who first established a bond with him by promise. He is the one who sealed that bond in the blood of Christ. He was the one who took the initiative in all of that. God is not erratic. God is not capricious. God does not change his loyalty from moment to moment. God is present. And we can experience his presence every day through his word. Every day he communes with us through his word. Every day he renews our hearts and minds through his spirit. Every day he fills our lives with his blessing. The living God gives us the living word. And that word is so wrapped up in our day-to-day life. And on Sunday especially, we come to hear that word preached. And that's how God communes with us. That's what he wants. The catechism says he wants his people to be taught not by means of dumb images, but by the living preaching of his word. 
And dumb here, boys and girls, doesn't mean stupid. Dumb means unable to speak. Images don't speak. God does. He speaks through his word. And that is central to the second commandment. The catechism works with that strong contrast here. It says these images are dumb. They're dead. But the preaching of God's word has a life of its own. And when the word is preached, it changes hearts. It changes minds. It goes out. It does not return empty. It accomplishes all that God sets out for it to do. Just as much here as on the mission fields of PNG. God's word cannot be contained, just like God himself cannot be contained. So the preaching of God's word has a life of its own. Have we made that life our own? What does that look like as we go from day to day? Do you come to church prepared physically and mentally? Or do you come unprepared? Do you come to church with a Bible and maybe a notebook and pen? Do you come prepared to hear the words of the living God explained to you? Or are you slouching in the pew, indifferent to what goes on around you? What about sleep? Are you getting enough sleep or do you regularly doze off in church? Why do you doze off? What were you doing the night before? Now it might be that some of you might answer, well, the night before I was up for three hours with a screaming baby. Fair enough, that's different. But, if you were out in Frio late the night before, and then come here and sleep in the afternoon or in the morning for that matter, that is inexcusable. There's no reason for that whatsoever. And then it becomes a question of priorities. What are you doing? What is life about? These are all second commandment issues. And you can't have it both ways. You cannot have it both ways. Someone who comes to church but regularly sleeps through the church service or tunes out has lost their sense of awe. Church and the preaching have been reduced to a predictable routine. In other words, this person has created a type of a mental image of God. And to this person, God is not all that interesting because if he was, they would pay more attention to what he has to say. So they worship him in a manner other than he has commanded in his word. That's what that is. There's no sense of privilege at being here. There's no sense of awe. There's just this religious routine that we all do together. That's sin against the second commandment. That is a denial of our whole reason for existing because God created us to worship. We were created to worship. Our whole lives are meant for God's glory. Think about what we confess in Lord's Day 3. God created man good and in his image that is in true righteousness and holiness so that he might rightly know God as creator, heartily love him and live with him in eternal blessedness to praise and glorify him. That is worship in every facet of existence, to rightly know God, to heartily love Him, to live with Him in eternal blessedness, to praise and glorify Him. And if we then disengage from that worship on the very day when we should be most focused, we're taking away from God's glory. We're breaking the second commandment. The God of our imagination doesn't seem to take faith very seriously, so why would we? 
Well, if that describes you this afternoon and you have children, the second commandment reminds us that, that there are drastic consequences to this sin. That attitude will destroy your children. It will destroy them. This attitude of indifference is really a disguised form of hatred for God. And God promises he will visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate him. And that shows how serious this is. When we worship, this is serious. This is real. This is not to be trifled with. But truth and heartfelt worship also has consequences. And those are marvelous consequences. Because when we worship here together in humility, with an open heart and an open mind, then we live out of the riches of the covenant relationship that we have with God in Christ. And then he promises to show steadfast love, covenant love, love promised to us at a baptism to thousands of those who love him, or as he can also translate it, to a thousand generations. That's the generosity of God. Those who reject him, he visits their sin to the third and fourth generations, but those who respond to him in heartfelt worship, he will bless for a thousand generations. And that shows how true faith unites. True faith in the home is such a blessing for parents and children. It is such a blessing to be raised in a Christian home. Thinking of the youth here, are you grateful that you live with parents who love the Lord? Have you ever thanked God for that when you pray? And that's why anything that reduces faith is to be rejected. Parents, think carefully. Is there anything in your home right now that is harming the faith of your children? Or, if you want to look at it from the opposite way, do the things in your home build up the faith life of your children? The games they play, the time they spend on social media, the friends that they have, the music they listen to, the books they read, if they read. Is all of this helping or harming the faith life of your children? There is no neutrality in life. It will be either one or the other. Everything is ultimately connected to faith. Everything comes back to faith. If your child is showing indifference or only nominal interest in matters of faith and is more interested in things that have nothing to do with faith, then maybe as parents you need to rethink what you permit or don't permit in your home. And maybe you don't know. You think, well, they put in their earbuds. I have no idea what they listen to. I have no idea what they look at. Maybe conversation needs to be had about that, and maybe some boundaries need to be put in place. And you might say, well, then it'll be difficult. My children will be grumpy. They'll be angry at me. Who's in charge? Whose home is it? What role has God given you as parent? God calls us to a living relationship with him. The greatest blessing anyone could ever hope for. The greatest good anyone could ever receive. And we see the longing for communion with God expressed in so many of the Psalms. But we can only ever receive that blessing of communion through the living preaching of the word. He didn't reveal himself through images, but through his word. That word needs to be central in our life. As church, as families, as individuals. The word shows who he is. An image of any kind can only ever show you what someone else thought about God. But the word of God shows us who he truly is. 
It shows us what he does, what he has done in history through Jesus Christ. It shows us who God is through his words and actions. God's word is living and active. And so when Jeroboam led Israel astray, God sent his word to intervene. And that word was delivered by a prophet. Imagine then the wickedness of Jeroboam who heard that and still did not repent. Remember an image is about making control. What's interesting, when you look at this passage, really interesting, once you start to see this pattern, how does Jeroboam respond to the preaching of the word? He doubles down on his sin. He tries to take control of the situation. He invites the prophet to come on over and he offers him a gift. He doesn't repent. Instead, he tries to get the situation back under control. And in doing so, he shows that, that his sin against the second commandment is deeper than ever, and he doesn't take it seriously at all. And in a sense, Jeroboam shows on a very grotesque level what lives in all of us, because none of us like giving up control. All of us were meant to be God's image bearers, but we failed in doing so. And you can't get that back by trying to control your circumstances. That's why you need Christ. The second commandment tells us that we cannot see the Father in any representable form. But Jesus did. He bore the curse for us. Also the curse of the second commandment. He restores the image of God to us. As it says a few Lord's days previously, Christ having redeemed us by his blood, also renews us by his Holy Spirit to be his image. So we, in a sense, don't make an image, we become the image. With a whole life, we show ourselves thankful to God for his benefits, and he is praised by us. And so this image of true righteousness and holiness, which is what we were meant to be, to reflect God in this way, is something that is engraved on us and in us more and more by his word and spirit. And that's sanctification. And every time that we fail, we... We continue to turn to him, and through him we have forgiveness and renewal. Through him that image of God is recreated in us more and more clearly. We are renewed day by day. We all reflect in our own creaturely limited sense some of God's righteousness, some of God's holiness. And we worship him more and more with a whole life. May we also do, may we always do so for his glory. And in this way, may it lead to our ultimate good. Amen.
Let's give thanks. Gracious God, we thank you, we bring you praise, we extol your goodness, for you have given us life. You have life in yourself, and you share that life with us in communion with you. The only life that is ever worth living, to know you and to enjoy you forever. By nature, we are inclined to turn away from that life and reject it. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, did so. We have done so ever since. We are born into this world spiritually dead. And the only thing that we can ever contribute from our side is sin and ignorance. And yet you make promises to us and to our children and you renew us regenerate us by your Holy Spirit and renew us and you continue to transform us to change us into the image of your Son enable us then to live out of the, your transforming grace to rejoice in the work that you do in our lives, even when it takes us through difficulties. They help us to break with the world in which we live. We live in a godless and immoral world, a world of death, a world of indifference, a world doomed to destruction, a world which distracts us. Enable us then to be in the world, but not over. Enable us not to love the world, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desire of the eyes and the pride of life is not from you, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. Yet we so often hold on to the world anyway. Help us to see things clearly as they really are. Enable us to do your will also in the week ahead. And in this way, grant us that we would live in communion with you. Indeed, grant that we would live forever. Amen. We now have an opportunity to give our gifts to the Lord. And after that, we will rise and sing Psalm 115, stanzas 2, 5, and 6.
The Lord will not forget us, but will bless all who in him alone their faith confess. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.